I love living in Wilmington. Anybody with me? It's a great place to live. Uh, Wilmington's a great place. Apparently, that love for living in Wilmington is contagious uh, because in the last 20 years, our city has grown over 40%. And if you're not a statistic person, let me give you the low, on, low down on that. That's a lot of people, okay? We've almost doubled in 20 years, and it's a lot of people moving here. Uh, years and years ago, people started using this phrase, love where you live. And I first heard it when I moved to Wilmington. It's probably been a long, a long time. I just, but people say that, love where you live. What, and I kind of get what that means. That means kind of like, find out what's happening in your city. Get out and like, be involved in what's happening in your city. Explore your city. Support local businesses. Go to the beach. Take selfies in the sunset. Love where you live. You know, it's, it's about me being happy where I live. And I get that, and I tell you what, my family's been here 11 years, and we love where we live. We love the city of Wilmington. But I've tried to love where I live in a slightly different way than that. I want to put a play on the words, love where you love this morning. And I want to ask, what if it became more about learning the history of the place in which you live? Learning to be willing to work hard to make it a better place to live. Investing in the people who live there. So not love where you live like the geographic location and how it impacts me. But love where you live as in the people who live there with you. Which one would make the bigger difference in the world? And so that has been like seriously a, a rally cry for me and my family as we move here. The goal isn't, I mean the, the phrase is the same, but the goal is a little bit different. Love where you live on the first hand says, let me make it a happy place for me. Love where you live, the second place means, let me make it a brighter place for someone else. Let me come in and take care what would happen if we approach living in our city that way? Today I'm kicking off a brand new series called Sent to the City. Because why are we here, Venture Church? Why do we exist? Is it so that we can have a church that we love to go to? Love where you go to church? I got to tell you, man, I love hearing you guys talking about how much you love our church. I love it. I love our church. I love you. I love your generous and hospitable hearts. I love the culture of grace that we have with each other and with other people. I love the model of kind of church that we use. We're like, let's just get to the heart of it, to the thick of it, and we say, let's tear down the walls that have kept people away from church so that we can bring them, build a bridge and bring them to Jesus. Like, I love that. I love that mentality. But why do we do this? We don't do this so that a bunch of people who already believed about Jesus could have a place where they were happy because maybe they were unhappy at another church family. That's not why we do this. We do this because there's brokenness and there's hurt in the world, and we believe that Jesus is the medicine for it, that we bring him into this situation and we make a difference. I can only speak for myself. I'm here because I want to be a missionary to this city. When I first came here over 10 years ago to begin the process of planting a church here, I would say this often more for myself than for other people, but to say this, I did not move here to be the pastor of a church. I moved here to be the, a missionary to a city. What's the difference? Well, one becomes very inwardly focused and one becomes very outwardly focused. And I think there's a calling for people to do both, but I wanted my heart to be in a place where I'm always looking out. And I got to tell you, in the last 10 years, that's been a hard line to walk because I love you guys. I am here to be your pastor among many of our elders and others who can just take care of you and be a teacher and be a leader and be a comforter and be a guide and all those things. But if we lose sight of what's out there, then we've lost sight of the mission of the church that Jesus established. And so I want to do everything I can to introduce people to my Lord, my Master, Jesus Christ. I'm also here to challenge you guys. I mean, we're family. But I have the biggest mouth, and I'm loudest the most often. And I get a microphone every week. 
And so it's my call and my charge to come stand before you every week and go, guys, what are we doing? Why are we here? Do we love where we live? And in what way can we see that? I believe we were sent to the city. And I believe we're sent to the city to build the kingdom of God here in Wilmington. So I want to talk about that for the next few weeks. Every week we love to look into the Bible for the answers to most, uh, the most important questions in our life and God's most important truth. And so if you've got a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and open it up. We've also got Bibles uh, by the back door here. There's this gray shelf. You're welcome to go grab a Bible anytime. Use it during service if you want to. Or if you just want to have one, like to keep, because you don't have a good Bible of your own. It's yours. It's your Bible. Everybody needs a good Bible. Look it up on your phone. Read it on the screen behind me. Uh, I, I gave us the challenge this year to be a church that takes notes and a church that brings your Bible to church. And I see more and more of you doing that. It's a good job. Be a church that takes notes. Be a church that brings your Bible to church. Um, we're going to the book of Nehemiah, an unlikely place to start, I think, in a, in a series like this. Uh, but I, I'm going to Nehemiah because Nehemiah is a guy who understands what it means to rebuild a city. Because when we meet Nehemiah, his city, at least the city of his ancestors, is ruined to the point where you can't recognize it anymore. The people had lost their identity. Uh, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament of the Bible. It might be a little bit difficult to find if you haven't looked at it recently. And so unless you've already got your bookmark there because you were reading Nehemiah this morning, uh, you can look at the index in the front and find Nehemiah, but he's one of the shorter books. He's actually historically was paired with the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are the same story, and then our English uh, publishers have separated them to make it a little bit easier to break down. But when we meet Nehemiah, we're in a book of the Old Testament that has his name, and we're going to be in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So here's a little bit of background on the book of Nehemiah. In this time in history, we find the nation of Israel, and they are in exile. Okay, so they've been living in primarily this region that we now call Israel. Their country was Judah, and the city in Judah was Jerusalem, and this was the core of operations for the Jewish uh, kingdom. Okay, but some things happened. Some stuff happened. They were disobedient to God. God allowed some other countries to come and take them over, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now the Persians are in charge. So this is world history stuff. If you look at those big maps and empires and stuff, we're in Persian history right now. And the Jewish people, by and large, especially the influential, the rich, the wealthy, and those who have been toted off, are not living in Jerusalem anymore, but they've been taken off, and they're in the Persian Empire right now. But it's at the end of about 70 years of exile. And the Persian emperor, the king, has actually made this really crazy decision. He's about to let the Jewish people go back home to their motherland and to go back to where they come from. But most of the people who are alive right now didn't even grow up there. It's been 70 years they've been living uh, away from home. So some of Nehemiah's friends had actually already gone to check out the city, and they'd come back to give, in, to give Nehemiah, who was kind of a leader at the time, a report um, of, uh, of what's going on. Uh, now, Nehemiah had a very specific position in the kingdom of Persia. He was a cupbearer. And this is a very good position to have. It's also kind of dicey. Um, the the cupbearer to the king would prepare the wine for the king. He would take it to the king. He got to taste fine wine every single day. Fit for a king. It was really good. And uh, that was nice, right? Uh, also, he would sip the wine before the king did to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So, like on the upside, you get really good wine every day. On the downside, you might die. Um, but... <laughs> You know, has his ups and downs. Nehemiah had apparently dodged a lot of bullets, and he's still living. And so that was his job. And in that job, he has a specific relationship with the king that God's going to use in a very important way. These people had gone to visit Jerusalem. They come back and give Nehemiah a report. And we're just going to take a look at that report. Nehemiah, we're in chapter 1, verse 3. It's going to be on the screen behind me, too. They said to me, those who survived the exile 
are back in the province. But they're in great trouble and disgrace. So there were some people that didn't get toted off to exile. They still lived there. And they'd gone back into Jerusalem, but they're in disgrace and trouble. It says the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates have been burned with fire. This is ancient times. A city without walls is not a city. It's vulnerable. It's weak. It's an invitation for anybody who wants to come challenge your authority to just come in and take over. And that's what people were trying to do at this time. And it broke Nehemiah's heart. Now, this is not where Nehemiah grew up. But this is the Nehemiah's like ancestral home. And it's something I'm sure they sang songs about and they dreamed about. And they were ready to go and they were finally ready to go visit this place. And then to find out, it's a mess. It's not even a safe place to live anymore. The walls are broken down and the gates have been burned. And in verse 4, Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah has a nickname that he's developed over the years. You know what it is? Nehemiah becomes known as the weeping prophet. And I understand where he's coming from right here. I totally get it. Um, For the past six or seven months, I've been part of a a cohort uh, called Charity to Change. Charity to Change is a group of about 20 pastors and other like-minded Christian nonprofit leaders. And it's it's a national organization. This is this curriculum that we do together. Once a month we meet and we're learning a lot of things. And the whole idea is this, charity to change. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has been great at charity. We want to help with things. We want to do things. But the goal is not just charity. The goal is change. How do we affect change with the charity that we do? So that's the focus of this group, to look at our context and say, how are we doing? What can we do better? What are the needs of our city? And it has been eye-opening. And when I see Nehemiah have this reaction about his ancestral city and him weeping, I got to tell you, when you love where you live, it's not hard to do this, to find compassion and empathy for the place where you live. In charity to change, I've been seeing a lot of reports from local uh, studies that have been done and other leaders and people from outside who have come in and just hearing from other Groups is a very diverse group in our, in our cohort. Let me share with you a couple of things that I've learned. As you look at the city of Wilmington, and this is obvious, you see it, uh, there is a huge division of wealth. Super, super wealthy people live right down the street from super, super poor people. Last year, the Cape Fear Housing Coalition reported that 52% of new Hanover County residents who rent, actually, I think this might go uh, also with mortgage, over half of people live month to month in their ability to pay their housing expenses. 52%. So they're not sure. The statistic gets even more dire. Of renters, 2,305 families face the serious possibility of eviction every single month. Now, that number, 2,305, that's one out of every 10 renters in Wilmington. That's 10% of people who rent their homes. If we were to do a, a hand raising of how many of you rent, I think it's a, it's a high percentage. A lot of us rent. It's expensive to live in Wilmington. To know that in our county, 10% of them may get evicted every week. Yet, a mile down the road from any one of those people is someone living in a $500,000 house with three, four cars and every single thing their kid could ever want and, you know, amazing things. And so there's this big line. There's poverty. There's wealth. Most of us in this room have found a home to live in, but 
we're seeing an affordable housing crisis in our county that's being risen to the point where the city legislators are working hard right now to solve it. Have you heard about the housing crisis? Now, you might be like, housing crisis? How is there a housing crisis? They're building apartments everywhere. Actually, that's the problem. <laughs> we're building houses everywhere, but this is not a housing crisis. This is an affordable housing crisis. Have any of you had to move recently? Have you seen how much it costs to live somewhere? It's astronomically high. And imagine if you're already on the precipice of being possibly evicted every single month, and then you have to move, and your cost of living goes up 20, 25%. You can't handle that. Statistically, we rank near the bottom of the chart on people who are living in a position where they can't afford where to live. But that contrast that we see and the brokenness is not just economic and housing. It goes into a lot of different things. We're also at the center of one of the biggest drug epidemics in the country. You might remember the prestigious award we won a few years ago about being the opioid capital of the nation. Good for us. It's a struggle. It's hard. People are broken. And the brokenness continues through crime. And there's brokenness in mental health disorders. And there's brokenness in the loneliness that we see people are experiencing. And we're seeing record numbers, numbers of homeless people in our city. In fact, the homeless-serving organizations in our city, a lot of them are involved in the cohort that I'm working with, they say that we are seeing more people stepping into homelessness right now in Wilmington than ever before. In fact, next Monday, the 20th, there's something called, uh, there's a forum on homelessness happening at Vigilant Hope just to raise awareness on why they think this is happening and how maybe the church can step up to make a difference. We're seeing record numbers. The housing crisis is at an all-time crisis. There's violent, violence in public schools. If you have kids in public high school and middle school right now, just tell us the stories about how many days of a month they have 15 or 20 police squad cars out in front of their car because of some serious violent threat to these students. And that doesn't even talk about the actual violent acts that have happened, shootings and stabbings and physical fighting within the schools. There is brokenness, and that doesn't even touch the racial and cultural inequities that happen in our city. Meanwhile, half of our community is beautifully oblivious to the pain. Love where you live. Selfie. What does it look like for us to love where we live? We are sent to this city to make a difference. What does it mean for us to get into the lives of people and make a difference? Guys, for many in this city, the walls are down. The gates have been burned. The enemy is attacking. What do we do? Let's go back to Nehemiah. He actually does some pretty cool things that I think we can learn from. Um, He's got a choice to make. What will he do? <laughs> what steps will he take? He's seen as a leader among his people. Well, Nehemiah does what I hope we all will do. Um, and it's not always our first thought. In verse 5, it says this. It says, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven. Nehemiah begins to pray. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. He's praying before you today and all day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave to Moses. You said, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, which is why Israel is living in exile right now, because God don't play. Verse 9, he said, but 
You also said, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. In a second, he's going to go talk to the king about their problems. But before we get to that talk, I want to, talk, I want to stop and talk about this prayer. Nehemiah was heartbroken. He believed that there was a chance to reclaim and rebuild and restore the city of his forefathers. But before any of that could happen, he decided to approach God on behalf of his nation. And he does something a little bit orthodox for our culture. Do you notice what he does? He begins praying. He doesn't say, dear God, please give us Jerusalem. Dear God, please fix the walls. Dear God, please put new gates up. He says, dear God, I have been wicked. And we have been wicked. He prays repentance first. He doesn't request first. He repents first. Repentance is, a, is the word simply means turning your heart back to God. From whatever angle you have diverted from following God in your life, turn it back to God. Focus it on God. And he does something that's unorthodox because in our culture, it's like, hey, if you mess up, that's between you and God. We say that phrase all the time. Oh, that's between you and God. <laughs> but in Jewish culture, it was communal. You live together, you die together. When you repent, you repeat for your community. We messed up. And when you go to God for help, you go to God for the community. We need help. And Nehemiah models this. He says, Lord, we messed up. And he owns his own mess. I've been wicked. But then he asks for a blessing. Because he's going to do something bold. Nehemiah is famous for two things, actually. Number one, for weeping. Men can cry, just so you know. Number two, for what he does. Check out what happens. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 6. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid. I love his transparency here. I was very much afraid because he's about to ask something bold of the king, not just the king, but the Persian king. And this dude, if you go and look up the Persians and how they treated people that came up against them, they weren't kind. They weren't a graceful culture. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Do you know why he is scared? Because uh, that's kind of like saying, well, if it wasn't for you jerks, we would all still be happy at home. But you empire freaks have come in and ruined our life. And you didn't let us leave. And so while we were gone, our city got destroyed. I mean, that's basically what's between the lines. And so, you know, you can understand why he might be a little bit nervous to talk to the king about this. And the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. I better get this right. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried, to the city in Judah, that's Jerusalem, where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king 
with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, hmm, how long will your journey be? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. Uh, my son, uh, he's 16, and he asks me if he can do things all the time, because that's his job, and that's my job. And so, can I do this? Can I go there? Can I, whatever. Can I do this? Can I buy that? Whatever it is, right? And so he asked me for things, and the thing is, like, when, when you were a teenager and you asked your parents something, you pretty much knew what they were going to say when you asked them. It's just a formality. Like, I'm going to ask you, you're probably going to say no, but I know I have to ask you, or you're probably going to say yes, but I can't just do it, because I'm like, not an adult yet, or whatever. So, and he came to me, and uh, He's right. He normally knows. So he comes to me, and a few months ago, he asked me if he could do something, and he was pretty sure I was going to say no. And I did. I said no. He's like, can I go to this place? I was like, no, you can't do that. I was like, man, you know, I just don't know if it's best. I just don't think this is wise. And so, but then he does the classic teenage thing, and he gives me like this speech, right? It's this pre-prepared speech. He had all the things done, and you know, this is who's going to be there, and this is what's going to go down, this is how it's going to be. And, uh, and he walks away defeated because I'm a jerk, and um, I didn't change my mind, and he walked away. And so but then I did something. I thought about what he said. <laughs> I was like, I talked to my wife. I'm like, actually, that seems pretty reasonable. I mean, like, why, why are we saying no? Like, there's really no reason to say no. And so we talked about it, and we're like, you know, it really wouldn't be a big deal if he did this thing. So we decided to let him go. I did something crazy. I changed my mind. <laughs> and, uh, but then I did something funny. I didn't tell him I changed my mind. <laughs> And so, like, uh, the rest of the day goes by, and this event's at night, and um, so I'm looking at the clock, and I know he takes, you know, 15 or 20 minutes to get to the place, so I'm just watching it, and me and my wife, we know the secret, like, we're going to let him go, but he doesn't know, he's just like, hang on my family, stupid family, and, you know, and uh, I'm like, hey, bud, did you still want to do that thing tonight? And he's like, yeah, I was like, okay, you can go, and he was like, what? And he like jumped off the couch and he ran to his room and got his stuff and got his keys and he was gone. And okay, the reason I tell that story is one, because it's just a fun story. Two, I want you to be in Nehemiah's shoes when he fearfully approaches the king and says, listen, you jerk, you allowed our cities to be destroyed and you ask me why I'm sad. Okay, then can I go home and rebuild it? And he's like, sure. And Nehemiah's like, What? And it gets better than that. It gets better than that because actually what the king does is he's like, hey, you need some soldiers to go with you? I'll send you some soldiers to keep you safe. Uh, here's a little bit of money to take the, the first step of the journey. Oh, and here's a journey. Here's this, you know, letter with my signet on it. If anybody gives you any trouble, you just tell them that I sent you. I mean, this is more than he could have ever asked or imagined. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 17. Oh, I got too far ahead. Okay, so this is key. This is key. This is one of several times in the Bible where God uses a powerful pagan king to do his work. And I just want to plug this as a, a side thing. If you're ever just terrified because the world is going to hell in a handbasket and you don't know what to do about it, it is. But I want to remind you that we serve the king of kings and he will leverage his sovereignty over anyone else's authority any day of the week when it suits his needs. Do not fear, friends. Our God is king forever. And so as Nehemiah faces this tragic situation and it seems like there's no way out, God steps in and says, let me give you everything you need. So they make this journey. They go to Jerusalem. They look at the walls, and it's pretty bad. They take an assessment. And then Nehemiah 2.17, he gathers the crew together. He says, listen, we need to talk. Okay, this is what we found out. 
Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. So come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Spoiler, they rebuild the walls. And it's incredible. In fact, the walls they rebuild are the same walls that many of them are standing today. These are the walls that Jesus served inside of when he worked in Jerusalem hundreds of years later. This is an amazing situation that they get through. That's the end of the Nehemiah story for today. We could dive in a lot more. But I want to use it as a placeholder for us to understand our role in this city. God's been using his people to heal cities forever. In the Charity to Change cohort that I've been part of, uh, a few months ago, we got to hear from a great teacher named Dr. Ray Bakke. And Dr. Ray Bakke has done lots of work in big cities. Primarily, uh, he lived uh, near the Chicago area. And he said, what does it look like for the church to make change in the city? And he did some amazing things, and he wrote some books. Look him up. He's an incredible leader. He actually passed away last year, and it was sad to hear. Uh, but fortunately, he's got a lot of good video teaching, and, and his legacy can live on. Uh, and, and in the things that he taught and that he learned, I learned a lot. So let me, I'm going to share some of that with you today, okay, about God's heart for the city. Dr. Bakke says that there are about 1,250 mentions of cities in the Bible, 1,090 in the Old Testament 160 in the New Testament for a total of 140 individual cities. I did not count these. Him or one person he works with does. But that's a lot. God mentions the city. He's always talking about cities. And it's a big part that he play, they play in his plan for the world. Maybe you remember one of the first cities that we encountered in the book of Genesis, chapter 18. There was a city called Sodom. It was on the brink of destu- destruction. God's having a conversation with Abraham. And this is the first time we see that God will use righteous people to make a difference in a city. God said, for the sake of ten righteous people, I would spare the city of Sodom. Unfortunately, there weren't even ten. Now, what if there had been nine? Like, is it ten? Is ten the magic number? Maybe. But I don't think that's the point that God's making. I think the point that he's making is the same stuff Jesus talks about, salt and light. A little bit of light makes a big difference in the darkness, doesn't it? For the sake of ten righteous people, this city could be different It didn't work out for Sodom, but God continues to focus on cities as he empowers people. And as you go through the rest of the biblical story, I could think about Joseph, who God uses as an Egyptian economist to save untold hundreds of thousands of people from a famine out in the rural areas because he has power in the city in God's name. Or think about how God establishes the priesthood in Jerusalem and the rest of Judea through the Levitical priesthood and the Levites. And you know what they're in charge of, largely? City stuff. Public housing and creating cities of refuge and creating uh, cities for criminals and training the youth of the city. Yeah, their major job was the temple stuff, but only a few of them needed to do that. The rest of them were spread out into the cities, and they did stuff for God in those areas. When prophets speak in the Old Testament, who do they talk to? City leaders and kings. Because God understands that the urban core, that's where everything distributes from. And in God's strategy for the world, he uses the city in many ways. And when we get into the New Testament, where is action taken by the early church? In the cities. Big cities. Ephesus, Corinth, the grandmother city of them all, Rome. Paul never went to a city smaller than Thessalonica to do major work. All you Thessalonican scholars over here. The point is God uses the city. And rural areas are important. They are. Dr. Bakke says, the city is a gift. The city is a gift. He says one other thing, and I want to get you to it. Let's leave that up there. 
In the first few hundred years of the church, this is how we see the church grow, prosper, and spread in cities. For example, in North Africa in about 140 AD, and I think this was the city of Carthage, but I'm not 100% sure, but there was a Christian leader there named Methetus, and Methetus wrote a letter to his buddy Diognetus, and in this famous old letter in about 140 AD, so this is only about 100 years after Jesus, it's only about 100 years after Jesus uh, rose from the dead, but it's a full 100 years after Jesus rose from the dead, so you can see this is a, a vital time. What is the church doing 100 years later? What is the core of who they are? He says, we Christians live in all cities as each man's lot has been caught, cast. And what do they do in cities? He says, we obey laws, but we far exceed them in character. We share our room and board, but not our wedding beds. I love that line. And then he says this little jewel. He says, and as the soul is to the body, the Christian is to the city. I want to put that on the screen up here behind us. Think about that sentence. As the soul is to the body, the Christian is to the city. This isn't scripture. This is an early Christian writer. So you can take it or leave it. But it's strong. What does it mean for Christians to be the soul of the city? I mean, we are the eternal element that lives on beyond the buildings. Uh, we get to bring moral compass. We get to step in the gap and help hurting people. There's a lot of things that we can do. I just want to leave that up there for a little while. Think about it. As the soul is to the body, the church is to the city. Another scholar in the, uh, in the first 200 years of the church said this. He said that uh, people would go knock door to door, and they would say, are there any sick in here? And if the answer was yes, there are sick people in here, the next sentence would be, can we move in and live with you until they get better? This is what the church was doing. Anytime you feel real good about your service project you did, you know, the other week and you, you like swept some leaves for an old lady, like good for you, but like are you offering to stay at her house so she gets better? This is what the church did. It's action. These crazy Christians are moving in with people to make sure that in a time of plague and your family has left you hanging because they don't want to die, I'll live with you and take care of you even if it means my own life. The church in Alexandria, Egypt, one of the biggest uh, cities of its time, the church grew like wildfire in the early years, and you know how it grew? Baby hunts. You ever heard of baby hunts? It's kind of like an Easter egg hunt, sort of, but uh, nothing like that. <laughs> Let me explain what it means. It's not as gruesome as it sounds. Uh, a baby hunt is this. This is a culture where there's not any birth control, and people have unwanted and unplanned for babies. And you know what they did with them when they were done having a baby, and they didn't want it? They would just set it out with the trash. And let the elements take care of it. This is, this is common in ancient culture. You know what the church in Alexandria did? They had baby hunts. They would find nursing mothers and they would gather them in different city squares. And then they would go and other church members would go out and find babies. You can hear them crying in the streets at night. Take them to the mothers. The mothers would nurse them. And until they were weaned. And then a family in the church would adopt them. That's how the church made a difference in the city in Alexandria. And they were known for it. And this trend of Christians finding ways to take action and love people doesn't stop there. I mean, if you look through the history of the world, it's Christians who started orphanages. It's Christians who started hospitals and homeless shelters and soup kitchens and who made sure that the elderly were cared for and the widows were cared for. This is the heart of the church. This is what it means to be sent to the city. But in the 19th and 20th century, something has happened dramatically. The church has moved from the urban core to the suburbs. 
And there have been a lot of reasons for this, and I don't think that they were ever ill-intentioned. I think everyone had good things, but the, the, the truth is that the church in the city became a relic. And we have these beautiful, ornate, Gothic-style buildings, and they're beautiful but they represent tradition more than mission many times. And I'm not putting a damning note on any other church body in our city at all. I'm just saying historically, this is what we've seen. Because what we see step in the place is great nonprofits like the YMCA and the Salvation Army who step up and say, someone's got to take care of the people. And you know what the church does? We gladly volunteer with them and support them financially. But we like to move our buildings to places where the land is cheaper and the people are plentiful and the problems are fewer out to the country, outside the city limits, out to the suburbs. And that's led to a lot of the things that we see in the modern church. Now, I got to say this. Uh, I grew up in a church in a small town. I would say that we grew up basically rural, uh, small country church, and it was what I needed. There is power in the rural church. There's power in the suburban church because the power of the church is the spirit of God who rose Jesus from the dead, okay? So this is not a statement on any other church body. But this is a statement on this church body because Venture Church gets where we live, in the city. There's a reason that our leadership decided to buy a building on Darlington Avenue. Not because it was great real estate, but because that's where people needed Jesus. And we are sent to the city. And for many of the people around here, the walls are down, the gates are burned, and the message of Jesus is what they need. So what are we going to do about it? I can only speak for myself. And I know that I, I hold a, a place with a few others in this church as a leader. And so I know my role is to embrace my inner Nehemiah. And I need to weep for the city. I need to find empathy and brokenness, and I need to find what it takes for me to care, to get out of bed every morning and do something about it as a leader. And I need to pray. I need to pray a prayer of repentance for myself and our community in any way that we've been wicked or just lazy. And then I need to take action. <laughs> I need to get out and find some walls to build. I need to go do some survey. I need to meet some people who are hurting, and I need to do that. And I want you to know, that's something I try to do as often as I can, daily if I can. And the elders of our church and other leaders of our church, our staff, we try our best to encourage one another to step up and do that. So I can, I can say about our leadership, we attempt that and we try that. And as a church, that's what we've been about since day one. Every single month we have a, a, a mission focus that we are looking at and we're saying, what are we getting into right now? How can we be involved? And that's why uh, we stand side by side with organizations like Soaring as Eagles. We had Kim in here a couple of weeks ago. And, and Kim runs an organization that helps people in Title I schools. Kids learn how to read and write and pass their EOGs at the end of, this, end of, end of grade testing. And she has people come in and volunteer just to help them. That's why we partner with groups like Vigilant Hope and Rice and Beans who work with people in homelessness and see how can we help them. That's why we work with Foster Pantry and various foster care organizations because there are hundreds of kids in our county who need homes, forever homes, and they don't want to be tossed around in the system. They want a mom and dad who can wake them up in the morning and kiss them on the cheek and tell them everything's going to be okay. And that's why people in our church, so many of you have stepped up and you have fostered kids and you have worked for these organizations. And that's why we set up times, uh, several times a year to just go out and serve. That's why I've been doing this uh, charity to change cohort so I can learn more and do better. And, and I've invited two of our other uh, lay leaders, I guess you could call them, Joe Cartwright and John White have been joining me at this meeting every single month. And we're doing the curriculum and we're reading the books and we're meeting the community leaders and we're challenging each other. And we're saying, what does our church family need to do? Not just to do charity, but to make change. Because in a few short weeks, we're moving up the road, and we're not going to be worried so much about setting up chairs and a sound system. We need to be worried about what does it mean to be in this community and make a difference. We are sent to the city. The opportunities are endless, and the body of Christ is alive and well. But here's the thing. 
This is not just about what I do and our leaders do and our church family does because we put stuff on the calendar. The challenge for us today is what do you do personally? What are you going to do to step up and make a difference in this city? And so here's the challenge I got for you this week. Every week, I, I challenge us to be a, a church that takes notes and a church that brings our Bibles. And so every week, I try to give us a challenge you can write down and do. Normally, it's like one sentence, and you can jump into it sometime during the week. This one has three parts, so forgive me. But I think that we need to model Nehemiah and have the same three parts. So yeah, put them up there. If you want to write them down, go for it. Uh, these are the three things I'm challenging us all to do. And maybe work on doing this this week. Number one, this is our challenge. Find empathy for your city. Weep. How do you find empathy for something? Like, if you don't hear the stats that I shared this morning, stats are stats, man. You watch the news for five seconds, and you hear a stat that'll blow your mind. And we are numb to stats, care less about stats. You want to weep for your city? Go volunteer with Kim at Soaring as Eagles with a Title I school kid who's in the third grade and comes on Saturdays for tutoring because they don't have someone at home helping them do their homework. You'll weep for our city. Or go to the Forum on Homelessness next Monday uh, I think it's at 6 o'clock at the Roastery, where Laura Bullock from, the, from uh, Vigilant Hope is going to be just leading an information session on what it, the homelessness in our city, the state, and, and what, what can you do to be part of it to pray for our city. Or go visit Foster Pantry and serve alongside the ladies who are with foster care people every day. Or get in the lives of one of our kids who live here, volunteer with our students and our children. And recognize that these children, made in the image of God, are cared for and loved by our God. And they need the message of Jesus. You'll learn the empathy for our city. You'll begin to weep. Secondly, pray. And pray a prayer of repentance, specifically. We go to God like Santa Claus a lot. We sit on his little lap and we're like, dear Jesus, I want a new truck. But what we need to do is take our heart to him and say, I've been a mess this week. But thank you for your grace, and I want to turn my heart back to you. You pray a prayer of repentance. And don't pray just for yourself. Pray for me, please. And pray for our leaders. Pray for our community. Repentance is a community thing. We're in this together. And then thirdly, decide where you can help build a wall. Whose life can you get in? And if you're in the life of one kid, here's the thing. If you look at the, and we're going to go over this the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to get into some specific ways you can do this. But, but if you look at our city, you're like, what? There's a lot of people here. How in the world do I make a difference? Well, you know, you know, Alexandria, Egypt was a big city, a really big city. But that one baby who was picked up, I bet it changed their life. It only takes one life to invest in. And that's how the church has been growing exponentially for over 2,000 years. Because the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us. That's the challenge this week. You were sent to the city together. Let's love where we live. Let's pray this morning.